revolution. Unchanged. Unadulterated. Unbelievable. CliffCentral.com. A very hearty welcome to all our listeners in South Africa and around this pale blue dot, uh, the earth. I've just had an extraordinary time, which I'll tell you about in a second. But you're listening to Professor David Block. And each week it is my joy and my honor and my pleasure to share with you some of the latest discoveries and findings, but above all, to inspire our listeners across the world to look up and to never, 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 never give up. And having said that, allow me first to give you our contact details in studio. The Twitter handle is at cliffcentral.com. My Twitter handle is at Starry Galaxy Man. That's at Starry Galaxy Man. If you want to dial into studio, it's at 0861-555-189, 0861-555-189. And the most favorite route to reach me in studio and us in studio, if you have any questions, is the WeChat ID, which is Cliff Central. I... In having said, always look up and never, never, never give up, I've had uh, a unique couple of months in writing a new book. And that new book features a scientist who never, 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 never gave up, Duncan. And his name, of course, was Galileo Galilei. Now, what's quite extraordinary about Galileo is that despite all opposition, and the opposition came down in droves. I mean, this man was sentenced to house arrest by the Inquisition. Uh, Despite all of that, he had an attitude inside of looking up and never giving up. And that is why I have selected today the topic of our discussion as Galileo Galilei, but also... I'm entitling this uh, crossing today, Infrared Imaging on the Earth and in Space. And you will recall that I've spent most of my career uh, looking into those mysterious uh, heavenly vaults of cosmic stardust, uh, stuff that Galileo himself, I'm sure, would have loved and, you know, to dream about even, uh, to see the universe, a new universe unfolding in space and in time. And so in writing this book, I've been retracing some of Galileo's steps. And uh, one of my stops was, of course, Italy, uh, where uh, Galileo Galilei lived and worked. And I was in one uh, specific city, Venice, where, of course, uh, which was, of course, frequented by Galileo. And uh, in uh, Venice, I had a very unique experience. I was sitting in the lobby of my hotel waiting, um, waiting for someone where we had an appointment together. And uh, in walked uh, a gentleman. And when he started telling me what he does, it riveted my attention. And as the listeners will know, there are not too many things that rivet the attention of Professor David Block. So uh, we have a very unique crossing today to Venice from our studios here, cliffcentral.com in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we are talking to 
LVs. Are you on the other end of the line, LVs? Absolutely, I am. Hello, David. Hello, Duncan. How are you? And hello to all the listeners. Well, Thank you for this opportunity that you're giving me. I'm very excited to be chatting here with you worldwide. Well, I think it's just so awesome that about a week ago or just 10 days ago or something like this, uh, I had the unique privilege, LVs, of meeting you in that lobby in the hotel and now we can uh, backtrack, if you like, and share some of those experiences with all our listeners across the globe. Of course, um, I'd love to just kick off by asking you, LVs, I mean, you are living in a place of dreams. You are living in Venice with its unique set of networks, its unique culture, one thinks of El Greco and Dura and many, many uh, other famous names. Tell us about your family background and what actually brought you uh, to work in Venice. Well, Venice has changed a lot from the times those uh, exceptional people you just mentioned lived here, but it has uh, retained its spirit. Yes. Uh, it is more difficult to find it. It is more hidden, of course, but it is still here. I was actually, I, uh, I was born not in Italy. I was born in England yes. from uh, yes. a Venetian uh, father. Uh, his family is Venetian through and through and an English mother. Yes. Uh, but also my mother, uh, uh, she had an Italian mother. <laughs> so it's, uh, my family history is a bit okay. complicated. Yes. So she moved back to Italy. She moved to Italy when she was uh, 17 years old, also to learn Italian. Yes. And she met my father here. Yes. Uh, and they got married, and then they went back to England to work because uh, after the Second World War, the first years were a bit tough in Venice. Yes. Venice was a city that was uh, basically without a future in a time when. Uh, uh, basically, Italy was getting out of the Second World War and it needed to uh, grow up to the other European countries. Yes. So they started industrial areas, first of all, in the western part of northern mm -hmm. Italy. Mm -hmm. We'll get to, to this uh, particular aspect later. Yes. Then, when my family moved back to, to Italy, I was very young. I was only three months old. Only three uh, months? Oh, That's I incredible, like yes. Three. I like to say that I didn't like uh, the weather in England. <laughs> I asked to move back to a nicer weather. <laughs> I would agree that with that, yes. It, it did help. And we went to live in central Italy, mm -hmm. in a place where my name was unheard of. Alvise Schiavon is so exclusively Venetian that everybody thought that uh, it was a foreign name. It was the English name of an English-born uh, half-Italian. Mm. And... Uh, when I moved back to Venice in 1994, I discovered myself at home. Amazing. For now, the fact that nobody asked me anymore, where do I come from? Yes. <laughs> now, tell me, Elvis, what you often speak, of course, of the spirit of Venice. And I know um, your right-hand person in Venice, Nat uh, Natalia, uh, also spoke to me in her email of the spirit of Venice. Now, having just been there and with Galileo having frequented Venice so often, there is a very unique spirit, which I'd love you to share with our listeners across the globe. I just found it fascinating. I found myself alive, Duncan. You know, Duncan, sometimes one feels so low, you have to sit up to look a snake in the eye. Do you ever get that feeling, Duncan? 
All the time. All the time. Okay. Well, in Venice, there's a buzz. In Venice, uh, there's just, uh, there's a spirit of passion. There's a spirit of excellence. I'm forgetting about the crowds now. There's a spirit of creativity. There's a spirit of wonder. There's a spirit of awe. There's a spirit of passion. Tell me about that spirit. Well, I can steal your motto. You said, uh, always look up, never give up. Yes. Uh, the Venetians always looked forward, and they never gave up trying. Uh, Venice was a, a, a small place set in a very fragile environment. Yes. But it played a key role between the East and the West. Yes. yes. Relationship between the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. And uh, that exposed Venice to both culture. And Venice just absorbed everything and learned how to create uh, a space for itself yes, uh, without yes. being crushed by these two superpowers of the time. Yeah. And uh, with time, it uh, cut out a place in uh, European or world history, which is now actually a little bit uh, forgotten. Um, I love the way you use the word uh, fragile, LVs, because when you think of it, it is so extraordinarily fragile. You've got, uh, you know, all these uh, palazzos and these palaces and, you know, built on water and so forth. And yet it was a place and still is of extraordinary richness and culture. I mean, I just can barely imagine the joy which Galileo must have had in uh, visiting uh, Venice uh, frequently uh, with regard to securing glass um, for his telescopes and so forth. But I just find, uh, having been there myself and with you having so kindly walked me through part of Venice, I found myself coming alive. There is a space which Venice seems to create for each individual. Is that not so? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, uh, I think that the... Mm, being in between the superpowers um, forced the Venetian to find a balance. And yes. in this balance, they were free to express themselves. Yes. From yes. the poorest man to the richest man. Well, that's just awesome. You know, I remember viewing the historic regatta and you could see, I mean, they were enacting historical figures and, you know, from the doge himself right through to the ordinary person. But everyone was rowing. Everyone is enjoying their day, irrespective of their social status. And I just found that awesome that everybody on the Grand Canal had their place in the sun. Is it still like that today in reality? Um, for those that feel the Venetian spirit, yes. For those that see Venice just as a place to exploit, yes. be exploited, where you just have to earn as much as you can and don't think about tomorrow, no. Yes. Of course, Venice is only a, a place of work um, where you have to fight for your work as well. So yes. it's, it's a right to be stealing work from others because mm -hmm. otherwise they would do it to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But that is, again, as I said, if you don't feel the Venetian spirit anymore. Many, many Venetians went and lived outside of Venice because they do not have that spirit anymore. Yes. It's yes. sad, but it is true. We have a listener, Darren, uh, uh, reaching us via WeChat. And Darren says, oh, man, that 
intro gives me goosebumps. Well, Alvis, how about that? That intro gives me goosebumps. And then he says, so glad to hear the professor is back. Well, I'm so glad to be with all my listeners around the globe. I'm just so excited to be um, uh, interviewing a very dear friend of mine who became a very dear friend just about two weeks ago or slightly less. Um, and I'm, I want to tell you more about this. So there I was sitting in the lobby and a gentleman walks up to me and um, he tells me that he has a gallery in Venice. So I thought, well, that's neat. He's got a gallery. And of course, as an astronomer, as an astrophotographer, I've devoted my life to the world of photography. So I adore visiting good galleries. I really do. Because, you know, you are really taking a step back in awe and wonder and in history and in sometimes mythology. It's just a step back. It's a moment captured in time. But then this gentleman, Alvise Chivon, said to me, uh, Professor Block, we do have a photograph of Galileo's studio or called Galileo's studio. Now that immediately, Duncan, can you imagine here I'm writing a book on Galileo? What would you do that do for you, Duncan? I mean, what would it do? Would you become excited? I think uh, I'd be excited and I'd know that, you know, maybe this was my true calling. That's right. Maybe this is my true calling in Venice was to link up uh, to visit uh, this incredible uh, studio, AR33 studio in Venice. But there's far more than meets the eye. When Alves took me to his gallery in Venice, I was totally in love. Why was I totally in love? Well, as listeners would know, I've devoted most of my research career to infrared imaging. We have used infrared cameras from space, uh, cameras which in fact were used to spy on the Soviet Union in years and decades gone by, but many years ago, used for spying and military purposes and espionage. And I was one of the first people, uh, Duncan, to actually be allowed to use these infrared cameras uh, for the um, application of space. And uh, I often felt perhaps like a military officer, Duncan, you know, just sitting there and, you know, having a peek at the universe when the universe wasn't peeking back at me. Uh, what an incredible moment that was, Duncan. But the interesting thing was is that I've devoted most of my life to infrared photography. In fact, that is true. If you look at my book on Amazon.com, if you just punch in the keyword Shrouds of the Night, Block Freeman, you'll see that uh, as Alves and Natalia saw that uh, I, we authored this book on infrared imaging. So there I am, deeply steeped in the techniques of infrared imaging on in space. But what Alves was going to introduce me to blew my mind away. And it all centers around a gentleman by name of Arsen Revazov. Now, tell me, um, Alves, where did you meet Arsen Revazov? I met him a couple of years ago because he was uh, searching for uh, an apartment, a home to, to buy here in Venice. He fell in love with Venice so much that he decided to spend time here. Is he, from, is he from Moscow or from other parts of Russia? He's, he was born in Moscow, absolutely, and he still mm -hmm. lives there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he, he travels around the world and is in love with Italy, as many other people. He has found Venice to suit his spirit more than uh, any other place, and he decided to spend as much time here, but living as a Venetian and not as a tourist. 
Of course. And of course, there's a major difference there because I just tried to distance myself too from the hordes of tourists and just absorb some of the culture, absorb some of the beauty. Now, when I stepped into your studio, your gallery, I became entranced. I mean, Duncan, they literally drew up a chair and they served me some. What was it? Coffee? Cappuccino? Espresso. I don't remember. Espresso. Italian espresso. Oh, yes. Duncan, can you imagine what that does for my soul? Especially coming from Italy. Welcome, Sally. Uh, Sally says, great achievement on the forthcoming book block. How come you wrote this book? Well, I'm in love, Sally. Um, I am in love, uh, and no, uh, not only with Venice, but I'm in love with the work I do and exploring the great minds, including Galileo Galilei. And thank you, Sally, for your comment. Well done on raising our flag. I strive throughout my career to inspire others, as you'll see on my website, www.davidblock.co.za. I love to encourage others to ignite the mindsets of Sally and of Darren and multitudes of others. But now coming back to this gallery, I was sitting on this chair in Venice and uh, I was entranced. Why was I entranced? Because I saw that this photographer um, viewed the world with a different pair of eyes. It was Marcel Proust who said the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Tell us about these new eyes of um, Arson, because I found it uh, breathtaking to say the least. Yes, uh, Arsene uh, is in love with infrared black and white photography. Uh -huh. Yes, he, he has found uh, that he is revealing a, a parallel world to our eyes. That's correct. It's, uh, sorry. That is correct. It's a fascinating it's a world. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, uh, very interesting aspects. And, of course, all of it has to do also with the desire and the thrive to experiment and uh, to, 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 to make new discoveries that uh, motivates every artist. Yes. Now, Duncan, when you think of a tree, for example, in summer, what do you think of in your mind's eye? Well, in my mind's eye, I, I just think that... Uh, what you know, color would you see? I, I see green. You see green. And that's right. I mean, one would ordinarily think that the tree is green. But why is it green, Duncan? It's green, of course, because it's, there's life in there. Yeah. There's uh, new good beginnings. Juices oh, I love that. There are new beginnings. Oh, I think that's just awesome. New beginnings. Well, you please tell the world... Uh, LVs, what happens when you photograph a tree in infrared light? You see a completely different uh, being. You see, uh, instead of green, you see an aurea shining very, very intensively yes. out of it. it. It looks as if it, a tree is oozing life. Yes. That's the image that has come to my mind. It is uh, yes. uh, um, it is a beautiful organism, a tree, in, in through our normal view. Yes. But see, in infrared, it acquires almost uh, supernatural quality. Now, the point is, when I looked at these trees, Duncan, they were no longer green, but they they had a would you say almost an aura about them, LVs, of yes. being white, yes. a whitish Absolutely. aura. Yes. 
Sorry? Yeah, they had like a whitish hue, like almost as if like covered in snow. It was just, it was, there was, they, they exuded life and joy and vibrance and the joy of life. Uh, yeah, terrestrial life isn't that what you just see when you see a tree uh, in that sort of um, magnitude absolutely absolutely it's um, uh, it's a very emotional also thing it is I, and how when you saw the work of um, arson for the first time and you saw these amazing photographs of trees in infrared what did it what did it do to you was it helping you um, within yourself to see the world with new eyes what attracted you so much to his work it took me a while though because the first uh, thing that many people uh, that comes to mind to many people when they see his works is that uh, well those trees look as if they're covered covered in snow yes they do that was my reaction too but of course i know about infrared photography yes you know yes. a little bit more than the average uh-huh, person let's uh-huh. say so uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> therefore you saw immediately after a, a, a moment that it wasn't snow and you understood what it was but most of the people don't, and I have to say I didn't at the beginning as well. When you look at his images, you think, oh, well, these are all Photoshop work, but they are not. That is the extraordinary thing about it. This is the real world around yes. us yes. that we don't yes. see. It's just one of the many parallel dimensions or yes. realities that, yes. we, that surround us. Now, we're having a look, listeners, at uh, an incredible website, which Duncan is going to describe. Um, the website is www.ar33studio.com. That's www.ar33, A for Apple, R for Robert, 33studio.com. Duncan, look at those trees on this website. What do they tell you? I mean, can you believe that that's actually a tree? Uh, actually, I don't, Professor. It looks like a bomb, an atom bomb just erupted, <laughs> and all you can see is that big cloud of dust and chemicals. Exactly. It looks like... Like a mushroom, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, mushroom. And yet, and yet, it tells me, as an astronomer, Duncan, that there's a hidden out, a hidden world out there. There's a world out there which our normal physio, normal physiology, our, our neurophysiological processes don't appreciate. We and yet the world, the infrared world, as I've realized by looking up at the night sky and imaging it for nearly twenty or thirty years, the infrared world is an incredible world because it shows you a different universe, a universe which is out there, but which the naked eye uh, cannot see. What's extraordinary in these images, too, is the juxtaposition, LVs, between the greys, the whites, and the blacks, and the incredible clarity. I would assume that um, Arson, the photographer, has used a very large format camera. Yes, he uses up to 12 by 14 inches, uh. Absolutely. Now, what, uh, what medium is, to large format. The moon, yes. there's the smallest is six by six. Yes. Now, the point is, if we just uh, look at one of these, Duncan, uh, we're just going to uh, enlarge one of these. It, it looks like a totally new world. It's a world out there which, I mean, I love this one. We're looking at one of Venice, yes, and one of the Kremlin, I think it is. This one of the Kremlin is so interesting because it looks like snow. It's literally um, Russia from the fourth dimension. Um, I love on your website you've got here how God sees Italy. I think that is just so neat. Expand on that, please, Elvis. 
Well, uh, that was um, a project, a specific project that uh, Arsen worked upon. Yes. Uh, um, it was uh, reserved to Italy, of course. And, uh, well, there's a, a very long um, elaboration on that theme. Yeah. Uh, the end of the elaboration was that most probably this is how God would see yes. Italy. Yes. Uh, in infrared. Yes. Um, it's, uh, again, a, a game of revealing the uh, hidden reality. Yes. In, in that project, also, Arsen mm -hmm. worked with um, the double exposure technique. Yes. So every image is indeed uh, built up by shooting twice on the same negative. Yes. It's very, very risky when you're doing that with the last negatives that are sensitive of to course. infrared yes. frequency because industries are not producing anymore this type of film. Yes. Now, I realize that, and of course, that really means that, in a sense, uh, his work is to be forever treasured even the more so because of the uniqueness of his work and that it can't um, be conducted uh, for any uh, great length of future time. But in this, on your webpage, How God Sees Italy, um, uh, there's a lovely little story of conducting an experiment, drawing a line, then drawing a square, then going into the third dimension, and then going into a fourth dimension. And Duncan, that's what I experienced when I saw the work of um, Arsene uh, Riversov, is that... Um, it just spoke to me of uh, life. It spoke to me of joy. It spoke to me of exquisiteness. But also it spoke to me, and this might interest you, LVs, of the interface, the cutting-edge interface between the macrocosm and the microcosm, between the world of art and the world of science. In a very real sense, his work is one of science, infrared. But in a very other world, in a very um, other... Looking at it very carefully, there was this juxtaposition between the macrocosm and the microcosm, but also between the world of art and the world of science. I almost looked at his works, especially the larger ones, as paintings in a real sense. Uh, that was the, the other dimension to me. Is that what it does to you as well? Absolutely. I, um, can I just expand a little bit on Please the relationship do. between Please science do. and art? Because I've always thought of artists as also being scientists in their way. I think of the cavemen and uh, the problems of bringing light inside the cave. Maybe <laughs> the best torches were invented for that purpose. Uh, and also on the need to transport an image seen uh, outside in broad daylight into a very in the darkest recesses of, of, of a cave. It, it takes uh, uh, an effort and um, you, you have to maybe draw a sketch outside and then copy it inside. Mm -hmm. It's extremely mm -hmm. difficult what they sure. did. Even today, sure. uh, for any academy student or even professor, it would be very, very difficult to paint by memory. Yes. Well, we have to think that it was difficult also in those times, of unless course. we accept that they were better people than, mm -hmm. than, than us, and maybe they, they were in certain aspects, of course. Mm. And uh, ever after, I mean, here in Venice, they were responsible for inventing uh, the canvas as a support for the paint instead of wood. Excellent. Uh, and, yes. and then also inventing a new... Uh, well, oil colors were actually made for the first time in Venice because they had uh, the possibility of accessing a lot of spices and a lot of uh, exotic uh, uh, elements yes. that they could experiment yes. with. Now, uh, now, the point really is 
uh, is that you've got this, uh, you know, even the telescope, of course, when you think of Galileo and securing his glasses from the island of Murano and so forth. Uh, there's this world of science, which always struck me, but there's this incredible work of art. I think of this great uh, palace I saw. Uh, was it uh, Cada Oro, which you remind me of? Cada Oro, yes, the yes. Golden House. And it's just so exquisite. It's science to build this on water, but it's also such an art. Um, living there surely must uh, give you, as you say, imbue you with the spirit of Venice to look up, to be motivated, to give the world your best. Is that how you feel when you get up in the morning, LVs? Well, yes. Uh, quite frankly, I do. Um, uh, many, many times when I'm a little bit depressed or down, I, yes. I remind myself of where I am. And I just go out and, and enjoy the, the place yes. and let, let my spirit be raised just yes. by the Wonderful. beauty and, and sheer uh, joy of being here. Now, we are talking to, this is a live crossing, to uh, Alvise Chivon uh, in Venice. Uh, who has a remarkable, remarkable, and a third time yet, I repeat again, most remarkable gallery, um, very close to St. Mark's Square. Uh, and I have been absolutely, I'm in love with the work which uh, is produced in that gallery, uh, the juxtaposition of the uh, microcosm, the macrocosm. But for now... As we step back and we think about Venice and the spirit of Venice and the great minds who've uh, walked the little uh, crowded alleys of Venice, it is surely time for us to play a tiny piece of music, this time I believe from Enya. hearty welcome to all our listeners across the globe. This is Professor David Block, and I'm looking up this afternoon with a dear friend of mine, someone who's become a very dear friend almost overnight, overnight, L.V. Chiavon uh, from uh, Venice. And it's just great having you back. Um, uh, Sally has a question for you, L.V. Is it true that Venice is sinking? Well, uh, it, it is true that uh, everything is sinking. 
<laughs> yes. Also, uh, in uh, in uh, every other city that uh, is continuously built over. So what is older yes. slowly sinks under the new construction. But I think in what this- Sally is asking Alves is rather: mm-hmm. Is it true that she's heard that in times gone by, Venice actually went below the waterline, or a considerable portion of buildings went were flooded and went below the waterline? We've had some serious floodings in the past. Uh, we've had uh, um, also some major, uh, how do you call it, natural disasters. So areas of Venice have been literally swept away. Swept away, yes, port, yes, yes. Sometimes my English is still not mother language. Oh, it's wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. By the force of uh, nature. Yes. Of, uh, yes. yes. Um, there are now theories that due to the drillings and the uh, extraction of natural gas off the coast of Venice, yes. then they could cause a giant uh, um, uh, natural disaster. And yes. Venice would suddenly, from one day or the other, just fall yes. into a big hole in the sea. Yes. Well, I hope that doesn't happen, of course. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> but Venice is set in a, in a particular environment. It's mm-hmm. in a lagoon. Yes, and the Venetians have learned through the centuries how to uh, work in the lagoon, how to influence it to yes. preserve yes. Venice. Yes, I think that is just amazing the way these buildings literally stand in the water over eons and eons of time. Now, I'd like to ask you a personal question, and that is this: um, is that you know? There, there's always a thought which keeps one up at night. I know for my students, Duncan, it's will they pass the next exam? Uh, that's what's that's what's really causing them stress right now because they write my examination on Friday. But um, what sort of um, keeps you up at night? Is it the work to pro- is it is it the idea of promoting this infrared photography more, or is it larger ideas get uh, reaching the corners of the earth, as it were? I want to know what keeps this extraordinary gentleman, Alvis Chiavon, up at night in Venice. I might have to disappoint you because my cats keep me up at night many times. Okay, okay. I have night cats. I work very hard. I work uh, many hours. And uh, when I am uh, uh, in my place, I live alone, I spend uh, hours actually. Uh, in my terrace, looking at the sky. Oh, wonderful. So what really keeps me awake is uh, the wonder of the universe. I haven't had time, David, to tell you that your work fascinates me <laughs> a lot. Yes, and in indeed. the future, I look forward to having many interesting conversations with you. We need what to... keeps me up yes. now is really my search for, for, for answers on uh, on where we are going, you know, the, the universal questions. Yes. yes. Where we come from and where are we going? Yes. Because I see that the world is uh, going through a very particular phase, at least in my opinion. Now, I just wanted to ask you too. Um, there are, of course, hundreds of thousands of visitors um, heading towards St. Mark's Square every week and month and so forth. And I just want to, if you can just describe uh, basically using St. Mark's Square as a base, your studio is literally just minutes away from there. 
Uh, can you mm-hmm. just tell uh, listeners where they might or how they might find you just using landmarks? Because let's remember, you know, you know, Duncan, I hate getting lost. Yes, you know that. And the professor likes to be found at all times. And uh, Alviz was busy taking me around because I just didn't want to get lost in all those alleyways. Yet I did. But it was fun anyway. Great fun. But the point is this. Can you give us some landmarks as to how people can, you know, enter this new magical world of the infrared if they are visiting Venice and want to come and view your gallery? Absolutely. We are located between St. Marcos, St. Mark Square and the La Fenice Theatre, which is, uh, again, a very important landmark in Venice, especially since it uh, completely burned down some years ago and it was rebuilt as it was where it was. Yes. Um, In between these two landmarks, you will uh, find us. Uh, uh, otherwise, if you visit the website, give us a call and we'll come and help you reach Well, that's what you did for me, absolutely. Another landmark is Mozart's house. In his only visit to Venice, he spent some days in, uh, uh, as a guest in a palazzo uh, in central Venice. Yes. And we are a few meters away from the door of this palazzo. Oh, wonderful. Now, Monwe, a very hearty welcome to you. Uh, afternoon to the prof and to Duncan and to LVs listening to my first live show of Looking Up. Well, I trust, um, Monwa, that you are inspired. I trust that you're looking up. I trust that you're looking beyond. I trust that the horizons are not your limits, but you're looking beyond the horizons to the very echelons, the carpets, the tapestries of cosmic space and of cosmic time. Uh, Alvis, can you tell us, technology, of course, has um, really affected the work of classic photography, classic astrophotography. I think of the great masters such as E.E. E. Barnard and Isaac Roberts and others. And, of course, they were masters um, in uh, photographing the night sky. And I think of Ansel Adams, for example, a real you know, master, legend in the work of uh, terrestrial photography. I think of the work of... Of Nisifor Nipse, uh, who of course is the real founder of uh, photography with his heliography. Um, but of course, today you and I are crossing via high tech technology to Venice. Um, how, has, how has technology affected, do you believe, the entire world of uh, classic photography? Well, immensely. I think that the technology basically gave birth to photography. And uh, it's um, I envy them because they can experiment immensely now with uh, all the new cameras uh, and also with with programs that enable you sometimes to reach the desired effect. Yes, but um, I still feel that is. you know. Sorry to interrupt, but I still feel in holding a mobile phone and snapping, it's not to me the same as using sort of you know everything at my disposal and allowing my creative mind to do so much of the thinking. Uh, somehow, I don't like a piece of technology to do the thinking for me. I'm still perhaps of the old-fashioned kind where I would go to the telescope. 
and I hope to discuss this one day with you in Venice. But, you know, I go to a telescope and I image the infrared universe that, you know, my passion and my love. But there's an art there. There is an art. It is a science, but there's also an art, which somehow modern technology is simply uh, raising a phone and uh, using it doesn't quite capture or allows you to capture the art of it. Or what are your personal thoughts about that? But I, I think that technology is raising questions in the artist's mind. Uh, uh, there are two approaches. How do I uh, make what I am thinking? And then the other approach is while you are working, oh, uh, look at what is coming out if I use a different chemical instead, uh, just because maybe you, you picked up the wrong bottle, uh, mm -hmm. bottle from the shelf. Mm -hmm. And something happens, you know, one of those happy accidents that happens in the, in, in, in the life of researchers of course, and, and, and of course. scientists yes. and you discover uh, something new that will enable you to present a different uh, uh, idea, a different view, or it just opens up uh, your, your mind to, um, to something new. Yes. And this is fascinating. Now, tell, is, me, uh, tell me, Elvis, I'd nice. like to ask you also, uh, uh, we have some five minutes left, is that uh, are public lectures given by arson or by yourself with regard to infrared imaging on, on Earth? We are programming the uh, activities like this for next year. We have opened only in May of this year. I see. And, yes, we are we are in program a symposium. Uh, on infrared black and white photography, yes. uh, not only on the technical aspects, yes. of course, um, most probably another subject would be what it means to be a photographer, an artistic photographer yes. in a world of one billion selfies yes. <laughs> every day. Yes. Yes. Well, don't forget, don't forget that if you need someone whose passion is to tell the multitudes, as Duncan can tell you, we do here uh, on the world of imaging the cosmos in the infrared, I'll be happy to speak for you. And to promote the incredible work of um, Arsene Revozov. But I think that in conclusion, I'd like to um, share one or two thoughts with you. I came away from Venice uh, having certainly felt that I could understand why Galileo Galilei, the one of the greatest scientists of all time and the father of modern science, actually loved to visit the place. Uh, there is a uniqueness there. Somehow you want to get up in the morning. Somehow you want to unravel new mysteries. And, of course, that's what Arsene Revozov's doing in the infrared. Somehow you want to capture the spirit of Venice, the unique culture of Venice. But that also reminds me of something very important is that uh, – I wasn't alone. I never felt alone in Venice. Um, somehow the culture of Venice, uh, imbued my soul. I think of the gracious hospitality I received, Duncan, upon entering the gallery, uh, being served espresso by Natalia and then LVs walking me all over the place so that the professor didn't get lost and just imbuing the culture of the place. Venice is a place of incredible networking. Is that not true, LVs? Absolutely, absolutely. And our meeting is an example of that. Uh, I was uh, walking into the hall of, of that hotel because as a director of the gallery, I also have to do some marketing work. Yes. And uh, so Rosa, a very good friend of mine, Rosa Barovia Mentasti, and you talking and just by 
greeting you, we've discovered that we have something in common. That happens continuously. <laughs> in You have um, um, a, a continuous relationship with everyone around you. You're not closed in a car. Yes. You're not running to work in, a, in the underground and you've got yes. a minute to... Yes. to, to, to so you have human contacts a lot. Yeah, you you find yourself talking with a complete stranger, yes. uh, waiting for the water bus, yes. and uh, it's absolutely natural. This is a wonderful aspect uh, of Venice. Sometimes it's a bit too close because when I'm on the rowing boats, for example, then I get these big motorboats that. <laughs> Yes. come too close to you. <laughs> Sometimes you would like to have a little bit more space. Of but course. Venice is a very small place, overcrowded. Actually, it was much more overcrowded in the past because Venice was uh, less, it had less places um, yes. uh, yes. uh, where it was it was built a little bit less. Yes. And uh, there were yes. 250,000 people living here. This was the city in Europe with the highest number of, uh, the highest population. It's extraordinary. And I think that, you know, listeners, here I am sitting in a, a lobby speaking to, um, you know, perhaps Venice's greatest mind, uh, experts on Venetian glass, Rosa Barovia. And, uh, you know, in walks uh, LVs and uh, Rosa immediately greets him and he greets Rosa. And uh, there's this networking. But I find it extraordinary that there I'm sitting in the lobby and LVs, um, to whom we're crossing now in Venice, you know, says to me, I have a photograph I want to show you of Galileo's studio. I mean, how's that, Duncan, for a small world, right? Here I am busy on a book on Galileo Galilei, and here pops in a guy and says, I have a picture of his studio. What would that say to you about networking, Duncan? It would be fantastic. It just shows you that how, how things just can come together Absolutely. as soon as you put yourself out there, Professor. Absolutely. Coming together. And I think that the world of relationships is the world that I want to end off on. I think the world of relationships is extraordinary. I think the world of friendships is extraordinary. I think the world of exchange of thoughts is extraordinary. I think the interface of art and science is amazing. I want to salute um, publicly the work of Arsene uh, Riversov and, uh, you know, his director, uh, LV Chiavon for the most amazing gallery, the most amazing gallery in Venice, where next they look up into the rich world of the infrared. This is Professor David Block signing out and thanking you, LVs, for an extraordinary networking experience. Sir Richard Branson had a game changing idea. He made it happen. You have a game changing idea. And now, Sir Richard wants to discuss it with you aboard the Virgin Atlantic 787 Dreamliner. Presenting Dream Tropaneur. Email dream at cliffcentral.com with your one-minute video or audio recorded business plan. If our panel of judges think it's a game changer, you'll be one of ten to attend a course at the Joburg Branson Center of Entrepreneurship. Then, two final winners will take home 40,000 Rand in cash, 140,000 Rand's digital marketing package, one week in London attending Global Entrepreneurship Week, and time with Sir Richard Branson aboard the Virgin Atlantic 787 Dreamliner. An idea is only ever an idea until you make it happen. T's and C's apply. Go to cliffcentral.com for more info. Are you South Africa's next dream entrepreneur? This is cliffcentral.com.